Good morning. My name is Keith. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Incarnation. We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at um, three or two and a half chapters in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter three, four, and then part of five, um, as we just kind of do an overview of this book. It's interesting that gospel uh, reading that we just heard. What stands out is this woman, an outsider, a Samaritan, who also has what appears to be a checkered history, um, one that she maybe isn't proud of. She's gathering water in the heat of the day when all the other uh, women are, are home. She's trying to probably stay by herself and not be seen or have to interact with a lot of people um, and maybe it has to do with this thing that Jesus knows about her. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that she has this face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And the disciples come and they see this, this interaction happening. And they're maybe put off by her. Why are you talking to this woman? But what she sees in Jesus, what she experiences... We can't see his eyes. We can't see his facial expression. We can't hear his tone of voice. But he's conveying something to her such that she doesn't shrink back from him because he knows everything about her. She runs into town and says, come, you've got to meet this guy who told me everything that I've ever done. You've got to meet him. We don't get to see Jesus face to face the way that she did, but that's obviously the impression that he leaves with her. There's this sympathy. There's this compassion. There's a full knowing and a complete embrace and love. We don't get to see his face or hear his tone of voice, but as we open the book of Hebrews, there's this pastor who wrote this sermon, the book of Hebrews, and this Jesus that this woman saw, he gets preached to us here in Hebrews. And I hope that we leave this part of the sermon of Hebrews with that same kind of um, safety and security and love and connection that this woman left uh, with when she had encountered Jesus. A long time ago, like years ago, and 19 pounds ago, I used to run. And I was never very good at it. I'm not built for long distance. I'm not even built for speed, right? Um, But I, because it's cheap and it's easy for a pair of shoes, you can go do it, right? Just about anybody can do it. And and anybody can get worn out doing it, whether you're running 26 miles at five and a half minute splits, or like me, you're trudging along at solid nine minute 15 splits, right? (laughs) Actually, one time I was running and Peter, one of my sons, was running with me and I... He started walking next to me. <clears throat> but I, I was into it though, right? You can't take that away from me. I, I did this. And I ran in a couple of races um, that were these um, like mud run challenges. They were at marine bases. And so you're running on soft sand and it's um, like 
10K, so it's a little over six miles. And, and on one occasion, this happened a couple of times, there was another 10K that I ran in Richmond, is, which is supposed to be flat. And that's why I did this, but it ended up not. But, but this one in, uh, in the Hampton Roads area was on a, on a marine base, and it, it was hard, and it was a hot day, and it was soft sand, and these obstacles, you had to climb under stuff and climb over stuff. And there's no way I was going to finish. There's no way I was going to finish. I was maybe four, four and a half miles in. I hadn't started walking yet, but I was going to walk in. You know, I was going to finish, but I was going to walk. And just as I start to walk, I mean, I'm thinking I'm not, I can't keep doing this. I see a familiar face running toward me, someone on my team who had already finished and then ran back, backwards down the course till he found me and said, we're going to do this. And he's yelling at me. And, um, you know, I'm just like, I want to walk. I know you want to walk. I want to walk too, but we're not going to walk. If you start walking, you'll never start running again. Like you're just going to... Or, you know, get the Gatorade, but don't drink the water. Um, Whatever, like, uh, this person was sympathetic to my situation because this person had lived through it and was right then still living through it on my behalf. This thing that I carried, this anxiety and this pain and this frustration and this um, irrational anger at the world, um, (laughs) all of it... It wasn't just mine to carry anymore. It wasn't this like secret thing that I'm carrying all by myself while people are whipping past me. Now there's this friend who's gone through the same exact thing and it's not just my thing. Now it's our thing, right? Now we can talk about it. There's someone else here that can identify in a very real way with everything that I'm going through. This passage of scripture is one of the most clear and beautiful visions of Jesus Christ as our high priest who's passed through the heavens and who it says has been tempted in every way, just as we are, who understands our frailty and our weakness, and he's there with us, inviting us to come. So as we open this passage Let's first set the scene with um, this pastor's burden. See, the, the book of Hebrews makes no sense if you imagine the Christian life as sitting like in an air-conditioned um, church building or office or, or study or whatever. If it's a comfortable, cozy, easy existence, the book of Hebrews doesn't, it will not mean anything to you. We have to approach the Christian life or see it the way that the author sees it and feel it that way in order for any of these words to have any relevance to us. Listen to some of the things that the writer says in verse 3, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse 6. That we might lose our grip on our confident hope through hardness of heart. The, the, The writer sees that's a possibility while you're running this race. You might flag out because of hardness of heart. 
in chapter 3, verse 12, that we might develop an unbelieving, an evil and unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God, leading us to quit, to start walking, and then eventually to say, this is not for me. This preacher believes that that's a possibility. In the next verse, chapter 3, verse 13, that we might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In chapter 4, verse 11, that we might fall away by some sort of disobedience. If I was sitting in my office, uh, I was a pastor at the time, the person who came and saved me on that race was also a pastor. We worked in the same office. If I was in my office working on a sermon then, and this this dude runs in and just says, drink the Gatorade. You can't walk right now. Like that would make no sense, right? But on that race course, it made a lot of sense. And, and so th- th- what this pastor is going to say to us, if you think your Christian life is in the bag, if you think faith is in the bag, it's not going to make any sense. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, that we are his house if indeed, so it's conditional, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, again, we have that same clause. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. So the pastor here, this preacher, spends time now comparing your Christian life and my Christian life and our collective Christian life to Israel in the wilderness. You've been saved out of Egypt by God's outstretched mighty hand. No question. God did that all by himself because he loves you, because he's your husband. So he delivered you out of slavery and out of Egypt into the wilderness where now you're journeying with him by faith and it's arduous. And there, there's wonderful things like the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. There's a tabernacle. There's all kinds of food and water and he's doing amazing things in the midst of this but to be honest it's suffering there's a lot of scarcity there's a lot of fear there's a lot of anger you see it people taking things out on each other and taking things out on Moses taking things out on God and he's saying this is this is where you are right now if you could see your life as a as a map with your salvation, and then entering God's rest once and for all, you are here, somewhere in the middle, somewhere where you have to still strive to enter that rest, as we'll see in a moment. So what does this preacher recommend to us in light of this? If, if your life really is like a race, and it's hot, and, it, and you're tired, and you get angry, and you get frustrated, and you get hurt by yourself, and also by other people. Like, if that's what this is like, what does this pastor say? What provision? 
how does this pastor help us see Jesus, this, the same Jesus that that Samaritan woman saw? He says, first, take care, brothers, in chapter 3, 12 and 13. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So first is just to take care, be sober-minded, be careful, lest there be in any of you an evil and believing heart. So we're looking out for each other as well. And then again, exhorting one another every day. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, we've seen holding fast our confidence and our, bo- and our boasting and our hope and holding our original confidence firm to the end. There are even these two striking words that are introduced in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You don't hear that word often, do you? A command to fear. And similarly, chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall away by some sort of disobedience. You don't hear that word often either. Strive to take care, to exhort one another as long as it's called today, to to carry ourselves in some kind of fear lest any of us should seem to fail to reach this rest, to strive to enter that rest. I think instead of asking the question, well, wait a second, let's get out all of our systematic theology books and let's talk about how this works. And I thought once saved, always saved. And, and if that's true, then I get to sidestep this whole thing. Well, then you get to sidestep the whole book of Hebrews. This isn't God's word. So maybe a better question is not, how does this work out with my systematic framework? A better question is, is God ever allowed to raise his voice to us? Is it ever necessary? Is it ever appropriate for God to raise his voice to us so that, like my friend, while I was on that race course, so that I might make it? Is that part of, is that an arrow that he has in his quiver, a shot that he has in his bag? It is as a parent, right? If I see one of my children playing on a busy road, I'm not like, now. That's not enough. We know, we know better than that. <laughs> this might not be the safest place, place to play, right? It's not that that would be almost like a child abuse, right? The dereliction of, of responsibility that's rising to the level of enabling them to get killed by a car. You scream, get out of the road, and your kid gets scared. And they get out of the road. And if they're crying because you yelled, well, that's okay. Right? I mean, because they didn't get killed. And then you, and you gather them up and you're like, hey, hey, whoo, don't ever do that again. That was really stupid. And you talk about physics and cars and, you know, the second law of thermodynamics and all that. but we're allowed to raise our voices. Sometimes we have to, and that's what this preacher is doing. You're in the middle of a fight. 
you are in the middle of a race. And there are certain things that you need to do in order for you and all of you together to make it. And God's allowed to do that and thank God that he does because otherwise we wouldn't take time to see what he's about to show us. So how specifically do we hold fast? How do we specifically encourage one another? What's the substance of the encouragement that this preacher is talking about? What does striving look like? Striving for what? See, these could be vague terms that could be easily misapplied, right? Hold fast for one thing. I don't know what I'm holding fast to. I need to have something in my hand. And so that's about to happen. And, and then encourage one another as long as it's called today with what? You have, your hair looks nice today. Did you get it cut? You know, that's encouraging. But that's not what this is commanding us to do. Or striving. That's a scary word or fear. Striving for what? To pray more, to read your Bible more, to give more, to serve more, to feel more sorry. No. So here we have in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, if you've got your Bible, this perhaps is the nucleus of the whole book, at least one of them. It's the nucleus of this section, at least, of this sermon. And here we have this presentation of Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest. This is what we hold fast to, what we're about to hear. This is what we encourage each other with. This is what we're about to hear. This is what we strive for. This is what we should be afraid that we might lose sight of or neglect. This, what we're about to hear. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In those three verses, we see Jesus as a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Aaron, we heard, read about the day of atonement with the linen and and the offering. And he would go through the veil. He would go through into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for um, the tabernacle, to make atonement for all the priests, to make atonement for all the people. And it was this once a year big ritual. It says here that Jesus hasn't passed through That veil, that veil got torn from top to bottom when he died on the cross. He's now passed through the heavens, into the tabernacle, into the holy of holies um, that was not made with hands. He's not some lofty, abstracted high priest. He's a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are. Not to belabor, but like my friend who came back to rescue me. He knew what cramps were that I was feeling in my sides and in my legs. He knew what the mental and emotional fatigue was of just wanting to quit. Who cares? I'll do it next year. It's not a big deal. Let's just stop. He understood that and knew what to say. We have a high priest who invites us to constantly draw near. That's how it's written. 
Let us then with confidence keep on drawing near to the throne of grace. That word with confidence or um, it, it means saying everything. To constantly draw near to God, saying everything. Not needing to hide or dress it up. And in order that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is the focal point of the Christian life. If it is a race, if it is hard, if it's exhausting, this preacher is convinced that, man, if we would do this, we're going to make it. If we, if we would do this for one another, we collectively will make it. To keep coming to this person, this real person that this woman in Samaria saw, a real person who already knows everything. We don't have to hide or pretend. If I feel ashamed, I don't have to cut God off until I don't feel ashamed anymore. Then I can go back to being a religious person that he wants me to be. No, it's, that's the opposite. It's come all the time. There should be a well-worn path between you and this throne of grace where Jesus, having already finished the race, is holding out his outstretched hand saying, if you're ashamed, if you're anxious, if you're tired, if you're angry, if you've been hurt, whatever it is, I carried it. I get it. I can be sympathetic. And these conversations are simple. Like, okay, what does this look like? I was praying this prayer last night, praying like this, just something like this. God, I feel anxious right now. Jesus, I feel anxious right now. And I was quiet for a while. And I was able to kind of center on, well, Jesus understood what feeling anxious was about. And I could remember some of the ways that he was anxious And I asked for help. Have mercy on me and give me help right now in my anxiety. And I just waited. It's not rocket science. It's the same way that we would talk to any other friend, except we're talking to someone who truly gets it. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about two barriers that this preacher anticipates and how he frames Chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. So bear with me for just one more second. If you go back right before that section to the three verses preceding, there's this famous part of Hebrews that seems completely out of place. It's famous, and you've probably heard it before, but in terms of where this argument goes, it's really hard to figure out why is it here? Why wouldn't that be at the very beginning or maybe like an appendix Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Calling us to strive to enter that rest. For the word of God, I'm sorry, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Like that woman, you, me, he already sees everything. Strive to enter that rest. You, like Israel, are running through the desert. And then for some reason, now, he's going to say, and while you're running, you're running naked. You're running completely exposed under the eye of the one to whom we must give account. There's nothing about you hidden. There's no shame that he doesn't see. There's no anxiety or anger or hurt or frustration that he doesn't already know about. Now, here's where it gets amazing. So that, that brings us right into now come with confidence saying everything. You might as well say everything because he already sees it. But how can I trust him that he's really going to get it? What's the point of this conversation? If he already knows it and I already know it, can't we just let it ride? Well, not if you want to find the kind of mercy that gives you help to get through and to enjoy that kind of companionship and friendship that we've talked about with my racing career. <laughs> Listen to chapter 5, verse 7. So this is right on the heels of that throne of grace scene. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The high priest wears that linen thing with the stones on the shoulders and the stones on the chest with all the names written on them. We know that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We know that our sins were laid on him. Here we, hear, we see this fleshed out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything that Jesus knows about when he sees you. When he sees you, everything he already knows, and listen, everything he already carried, and he carried it with loud cries, the stuff that you're accountable for, and even the stuff that you're not accountable for that's been done to you by someone else that's painful or that's just been done to you by virtue of the fact that we live in a fractured world with fractured people. All of it. He carried it. He carried all that brokenness and the weight of it. All those millstones hanging around his neck. The weight of it drove him to cry out with loud cries. Don't let this be the end of me. I want to quit. I want to at least walk. I don't want to keep running do I have to do all of it? Have I come far enough? Can we call it good? He knows every single thing about you. Every single thing about you that would be a barrier to you coming to the throne of grace and finding mercy and warmth and help the way that that woman did at the well. He already sees it all and he's even, he's felt the weight of it. He's carried it the way that you're carrying it now so that you can now come to the throne of grace with no shame and with no sense of pride 
He already sees it. He's already carried it. He's felt the weight of it. So I can tell him, that thing you already know about from like thousands of years ago, that's what I'm feeling right now, today. Can we talk about that? Yeah. I, I understand that. He's been tempted in every respect, just as we are, so that he could become a merciful and sympathetic high priest. Sympathetic is the ability to share. So striving to enter that rest, that verb is to, to hurry, to hasten, to be eager, like this Samaritan woman was when she went and found all the people in the village. She beat a path. And the invitation for us is, beat a path to Jesus, a well-worn path. Keep on coming to this throne of grace in prayer, in conversation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.